no more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, air force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Welcome to Media and the End of the World. Ralph, how are you doing today? Adam, I am great. How are you? I'm doing well. We're excited to have the Engelman Livermore Professor in Community Journalism, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist John Smeltzer, join us today. John, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'd just like to hear a little bit about, uh, just can you give the audience a little bit of a background to to your experience, particularly as it relates to, to community journalism? Um, sure. I was a uh, editor and reporter at the Chicago Tribune for 35 years. Um, and it's the furthest thing that in, in your imagination from a community newspaper. But in the early, in the 70s and early 80s, they ran a, a uh, insert that was a community paper, and I was the uh, senior uh, editor of that, and it was called Suburban Trib, and it circulated in all the suburbs in Chicago, and there were 14 different editions of that, uh, so that you could do it, you could go and. Um, it was a community paper that was zoned to the community. And then in the mid-'80s, uh, the Tribune you know, shot themselves in the foot, like so many newspapers uh, proceeded to do, and said, oh, we know how to zone papers, and we're going to zone the metro section, and, and then proceeded to disconnect from the readership. That's what, you know, uh, uh, John and I have talked about this before quite a bit here, but uh, so I grew up in Chicago, and I grew up in a household that read the other paper. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we, were, we were a Sun-Times family, mostly because it was a lot easier to read in the backseat of a car as my father was commuting to work, and also, you know, because it was, you know, the, the South Side paper, more or less. You know, it was an, it was interesting to and grow, the more liberal paper, yeah, the more liberal paper, and and had a t- had a, a kind of a different audience focus and a different history, but it was you know, I, and I, I I don't like to be very nostalgic about it, but you know, multiple newspaper towns are a good thing that are that's few and far between anymore, and that's kind of a sad thing I think. In fact, Chicago Today was still a thing when I was there too, so they had an afternoon paper as well as the two morning papers. So yeah, and in, in the Chicago area is you know has some wonderful media opportunities you don't have in the rest of the country. There's actually three papers that circulate in in the city. Uh, you have the the Daily Herald, which is published in Arlington Heights, which is a northwest suburb, and then you have the Tribune, and then you have uh, the Sun Times still hanging on by a thread. Uh, but then you have a raft of these little, you know, neighborhood papers that circulate, you know, throughout the neighborhoods in Chicago and the suburbs. My, my first job in the world that I got paid money for was actually delivering the Southtown Economist. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Which was a, re- for, for the sake of interest, was a regional paper that was in the southwest suburbs. Right. Which is now owned by the Tribune. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They became, yeah, they, they tried to become a citywide paper, I think, for a right. bit. And uh, by then I was, I was no longer making my money off of them. And it wasn't much money. <laughs> There's been an argument made that right now is we're at a point in time where 
the majority of people are relatively engaged with media on a national level, like really following what's happening, whether it relates to U.S. politics, whether it's the White House or um, uh, uh, federal judges and the Supreme Court. And at the same time, you've you taught a, a class called Journalism Under Siege, and I'm sure we'll talk about that, exactly what that means. But this, this idea of, um, of fake news or journalism under siege, how have you got a sense of how that has impacted news outlets at a smaller market level? How is 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 this? Is there a similar reaction? Has it had much of an impact on smaller regional papers? As the same way in which we've seen, because the attacks are broadly made on on large national media entities. Actually, you know, we've had some you know, very clear cut examples. Uh, here in uh, Oklahoma, in up in Enid, the Enid News and Eagle, um, wrote an editorial in 2016. Um, so, you know, at the just before the uh, presidential election, it was the normal editorials that were being written by all the newspapers around the country as to who they were endorsing. And the first time in the history of the hundred and some odd year history of that newspaper, they endorsed a Democrat. Uh, and in Rock Rib, Red, uh, Enid, Oklahoma, uh, it just erupted incredibly. And, you know, the fake news and the uh, uh, virulence that was uh, exhibited against towards the, the paper was pretty extreme. Uh, people canceled paper, you know, their subscriptions like mad. Reporters were met on the street with uh, the you know charges of fake news. Um, it's still going on today, um, you know. And it's you know we've I've talked to uh, a broadcast reporter that was over the, uh, in um, in uh, Louisiana, and he was setting up his equipment in front of a city hall, and a father was walking by pushing a stroller. Uh, of his, you know, probably three, you know, three or four year old, and and uh, the three or four year old asked, "What's that?" Uh, and the father said, "That's fake news." <laughs> 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 and 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 you know, in that same guy told me, he said he did this wonderful story uh, about a, a, you know, a policeman and the efforts that he was making to go and reach out to the community and what have you. And it aired, and he, he later ran into the cop and said, did you, did you see the story? And he, the cop said, no, I don't watch fake news. <laughs> <laughs> but yet he participated in the – so, yeah, it's, it's affecting uh, – it's, it's infecting you know, all of the uh, media outlets from the major uh, national outlets down to the, the local outlets uh, – can I just just out of curiosity, uh, I haven't talked a lot to people about, you know, at length because it would take some digging to get through to it. But somebody who has that kind of like fake news defensive move, what what do you think in their mind is going to happen on the other side of it? Where are they going to get their information from? How are they going to know what's going on? I don't think they've thought that that far. Uh-huh. Um, they get all their news from uh, one or two outlets. Um and and this is part of the problem that we you know have developed. People, we've you know dissected the audience so much that people can go and target 
you know, their audience. MSNBC, for instance, is a liberal outlet. Uh, Fox News is a conservative outlet. CNN is, and people are going to argue about this. CNN, you know, tries to say it's a middle of the road, but you're going to have a lot of people tell you that it's a liberal outlet uh, outlet also. Um, so then you go and look at the, you know, the, the newspapers. You have the um, East Coast uh, liberals that run all the newspapers. Um, and so it, it's, you know, this is going to be a continuing problem, and I don't, there's no solution to it. Mm-hmm. So, and I don't think, I don't think people have thought or cared about where they're going to get their news from. They go and get their news delivered to them. They're interested in whatever, and they put it into their search engine on their computer, and the search engine del- delivers every morning a bunch of a raft of things that may or may not be true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to me, the challenge is always to get people to be interested in how that stuff works yeah. so that, you know, they, they have some sense of how it ends up being there. So if you have someone saying, I get my news from, you know, stick the technology in whatever it is, Facebook or whatever. Well, it's not a it's not a news production vehicle. It just happens to be a place where a lot of information gets transmitted. So how people understand how that works is really kind of critical, I think. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, we had I mean, we had kind of a, a, a bit of an exciting week in media. <laughs> you could say. <laughs> yeah, some stuff happened, and some of the stuff was kind of interesting. One of the things that uh, we were talking about uh, in the elevator on the way – does that sound technical enough? In the rocket ship on the <laughs> yeah, way now um, was, uh, was about the anonymous op-ed that appeared in the New York Times. And, uh, John, you had some thoughts about how its arrival uh, was engineered that I thought were interesting. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, the, the, you have – there were two ethical – discussions that had to have gone on at the times. Uh, the first ethical discussion was, do you publish a, an anonymous piece? Um, and then you have to, the ethical dis- dis- discussion is because if you don't publish, that information will never be seen. So as an ethical ethicist, you go and say, well, we, either th- we believe that the information is so important that it needs to be published even if it is anonymous, or you go and say, you know, we don't go and we will not publish anything that is unsigned. So the Times' first step was they decided that they thought the information was so important uh, that it needed to be uh, published and that this writer of the anonymous op-ed piece uh, believed that uh, the situation had become so severe in the White House that there was a group of uh, White House senior staff members who were working concertedly to go and control um, and manage uh, the presidency so that it wasn't damaged the republic. Um, so you have that there. Now, the second ethical discussion that they had to have had was – do we follow our nor- the normal routine, which was to stick it in the, mor- the Thursday morning paper opposite the editorial page, never say anything about it, and when it hits the newsstands at 5 o'clock in the morning, the, it will let everything erupt at that point. Um, instead, somebody made a decision to go and change the conversation on Wednesday afternoon and said, we're going to publish this 
on Wednesday afternoon, we're going to change the conversation, which at that point was the Washington Post uh, conversation about uh, Bob Woodward's new book, Fear. And we're going to change it back to the focus and the spotlight being on the New York Times instead of the spotlight being on the Washington Post. That then gave them an opportunity to go on Thursday morning to do a reaction story to what people thought were saying about the Anama story. So that the Times reporters Wednesday afternoon and Wednesday, uh, Wednesday night were able to put together a very large front page story about what the anonymous uh, op-ed column was now saying on the op-ed page. Yeah, there was a. I was just looking, and uh, yesterday they uh, published in some of their following coverage, you know, the, the denials, the people who said no, it wasn't me. By the way, just to be clear, we we had this discussion before we started recording. I didn't write it, Adam. Did you write it? I solemnly swear that I did not and write the John, anonymous. John, did you write it? I refuse to go and answer on the. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently, Rand Paul of Kentucky, an ally of Mr. Trump, this is the New York Times writing yesterday, recommended that the president for members of his administration to take polygraph examinations. I've been done before. (laughs) I think that was done by Richard Nixon. Yeah, yeah, there's been a lot of talk of Nixon over the past year, hasn't there? There has. It keeps keeps coming up because of this, because of the Nixonian feel that all of this has. Uh, Did did you read the op-ed? I have. And what did you think? Um, I didn't see anything in it that was so compelling that it had to be printed mm-hmm. uh, I, yeah i'm curious as to i mean there's been a lot of speculation as to what are the optics of doing something like this are you trying to telegraph a message to the president saying that you know just just so you know we we do have control of this are you trying to telegraph a message to potential voters in the upcoming um uh, uh senate elections that don't worry you know even though this might seem like we don't have a handle on it the, you know the, the party is still in order there are adults in the room right saying, right, right. Yeah. and so that 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 to me is a, a big question of what or or is it just a, a personal thing where someone just feels like you know we keep getting lumped in with with this person as you know and, and what we're really doing is very honorable and patriotic um and I, I don't know exactly if it's one of those or all three of the sort of the, the the what what brought this person to wanting to write the letter itself? I don't know. You know, I don't know. Number, one, I don't know what may brought that person to that point. Um, I was reading some of the comments uh, that had been posted about the op-ed piece. There were as of yesterday afternoon, there were ten thousand some. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hey, by the way, if, if you haven't, if, if, if any of you listening haven't, you'd need to look at the graphic that they use at, at the head of this, because it's the whole United States balanced on the foot of Texas, and several people on a rope trying to keep it from falling over into the abyss. And if you, it, it's very subtle, but there, it is actually moving. It's teetering on that edge. It's mm-hmm. actually kind of a nice piece. Anyway, yeah. But it's, it's um, you know, it, it's, it's a situation where you go and say... Was this necessary? Is it going to be so important? And like you said, uh, Adam, was this? Uh, what? Where were the op- Where are the optics of it? I'm not sure. Um, I, you know, if I'm sitting, okay, the Times said its op-ed editor. There was a 
third party. Right. That acted as an intermediary. That was the intermediary in introducing him to whoever the senior White House official is. Right. He's, he confirmed through conversations with that, the op-ed editor confirmed through conversations with that third person, I mean with the with the person, the senior White House official, that he was in fact the senior White House official. But I've never seen anything that says he met the person, he knows right. the person, so I don't know, Does this is this a real person? So that's number one, that's one optic that I still don't have an answer to. Um, but second, assuming it is accurate, that it is a, that a senior White House official, what's the message? Is the Times trying to telegraph or tell the president, yeah, you're right, we really are out to get you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, you know, it, it's like we're making it really clear by publishing this thing that we really are going to get you. Uh, or uh, is, there, is there something, some other thing that's, that this guy, woman, um, who wrote the op-ed piece, are they so? Are they you know in you know so patriotic that they believe that this is a presidency that's out of control, and that they felt that they had to go and raise a flag and tell the country there are adults in the room? Well, let's let's shift a little bit to the to the story that it pushed out. That's going to come back, right? So we're kind of right in the middle of of fear right mm-hmm. now. Uh, so this is the new Bob Woodward book, which is uh, has a bright red cover. Right. <laughs> with a scary picture of Trump and the word fear emblazoned on it. Um, what's what's your initial take on what you've heard about the the book so far? Well, I think you've got uh, – it's, it's interesting. You've got bookends for Woodward. You have all the president's men and then this raft of books that he's written in between and now fear. Uh, and it's like, you know, 50 years of – have transpired between all the president's men and fear and all this stuff in between. And these are the two things that are going to be remembered. What is interesting that I find out so interesting about it is that Carl Bernstein is now talking again about Bob Woodward and to Bob Woodward. Now, Carl Bernstein was the second person on the all the president's men investigation. So, and book. Uh, so, um, Bernstein and Woodward were estranged. They hadn't talked for years, and now all of a sudden they're being brought back together by this book. Hmm. It's, like, it's, it's like the it's we're somewhere in the Marvel universe where like the <laughs> people that were enemies now have to to join forces to, to fight the new bad guy. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, sort of like the Guardians of the Universe showing up with, uh, <laughs> with, the, with the Avengers. Yeah. So the the uh, the question becomes: Is the book hits the newsstands on Tuesday? Um, it's already the number one bestseller because the pre-sales have already, you know, taken over. So, you know, what's going to be the conversation this coming week mm-hmm. uh, when people start reading the book? Yeah, well, part of it, I mean, part of the initial sort of like lead up was the uh, release of the recording of the phone conversation between Woodward and Trump, which I thought was 
interesting also um, you know you kind of picture that that the, the that the White House fortress environment is now just a bunch of people in their recorders right running around recording each other what did you did you get a chance to listen to that I, conversation? I only a little bit of it no so I'm yeah. gonna say no it's yeah it'll, it, it's gonna it's, it, it's gonna resurface because I think there's kind of a, a chumminess that's there even though Trump more or less states that he knows the book is going to be negative um, but I, I think by the time it gets out I think the response is going to be a much more uh, elaborate <laughs> response because of uh, because of what some of the book is claiming about the way things are working uh, at, yeah. in the administration. And I, I think this is one of the, the more fascinating parts of Trump. We saw this at the beginning of the presidency too, him going to the New York Times offices to meet with you know the editors and I mean even even with his as much as he wants to hate it, he desires so much to be liked by by the media, and so he he can't resist trying to win over Bob Bob Woodward, you know, in 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 conversations with them because he just he he for whatever reason believes deep down that he's going to be able to 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 win him over on a with a phone conversation. Trump is a media junkie. Yeah, uh, he is. He really is a junkie. You go and think about it. He'll go and. He records, he watches Fox News live, but he records everybody else at the same time. Or he has his staff record everybody else at the same time. And he, so he's watching all these programs all day long, you know, where in the past presidents spent a lot of time reading policy papers and, um, and you know, doing deep, you know, d- doing things of that and meeting with people. Trump spends a lot of his time apparently watching television. Uh, which and, is, and I don't know which where is, that leads. And, 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 and let's not go into That's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a different way to go and get your information. Yeah. It uh, does. You know, I think one of the challenges that all of us face whenever we're watching that is, you know, and, and the thing, one of the things that I'm, you know, nostalgically think about when I think about the newspaper is that when you got to the opinion section, it was really clear, like you turned the page and everything looked different and you knew yeah. you were no longer on the news page, you were on the opinion page. And in so much of this television coverage it all blurs together and that becomes something where it's really important for people to have the skills to be able to figure out from one moment to the next and it can be just the turn of a phrase just sticking the word if into the middle of a sentence all of a sudden makes an opinion based speculation rather than actual news you well, got to remember that the only two pages of a newspaper that a publisher controls or the editorial page and the op-ed page. Everything else is news. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was going to say one thing that's interesting, and this gets brought up by by Woodward, and I mean it's been talked about before, but there's all it also changes the way the way in which senior White House officials feel like they can speak best to the president is to go through the media as an intermediary, you know, which is interesting. I mean, you send someone on Fox and Friends to talk to him to, to persuade him one way or, or um, uh, you know, you, you send an anonymous op-ed to the, the Times, but you, you try to find every which way to talk to him without doing it directly and you use the, the media in that way. And I think that's an interesting thing for media organizations to be negotiating with is you know, to what degree do we allow the this to, to take place, um, it's really hard to turn that down. And I think that's, that's, that's at the crux of this conversation about the New York Times decision to go ahead and publish it mm-hmm. is we, you know, we, it, are, are we also just being used as a vehicle uh, for, for the White House itself? What's well, so fascinating to watch the Sunday morning television news mm-hmm. programs because the administration is on all the networks. Uh, 
It's you know they're they are placing their people on all the the morning news shows, just like every other presidency in the past has done, because they have a message that they want to deliver, even though that is the smallest audience in the in the week. Uh, it's the most important audience in the week because on Sunday mornings, people who don't go to church. Watch the Sunday news shows. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the whole reason Rudy Giuliani got his job was yep. essentially to to be the mouthpiece for the lawyers. Exactly. So just just to keep our statistics up to date, as of September fourth, the Washington Post reports that Trump has uh, made four thousand seven hundred thirteen false or misleading claims since the election. So there. How many? How do we have an exact number on that? That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's really that's, helpful. Yeah. I wonder how many he made last night at the rally in yeah, Montana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. As soon as I start hearing some of those rally recordings, I start looking for something else to listen to. Yeah. Let's. So, uh, well, I, I want to talk about the class itself, the class journalism under siege. Can you talk about um, maybe the give us some background on onto where that idea came from? Um, that idea came. You know, I. I came up with the idea along with Mike Betcher. We were sitting uh, over coffee one one evening, and we were just talking about, you know, wh- what was going on in the field of journalism and how um, we, there was this mentality of a, almost, you know, that bordered on siege mentality. And we started thinking about, well, is that a class? Um, and then I started as I started working my way through it, um, is, you know, could you go and put a together enough conversations uh, with people who can talk about the siege mentality to go and make it interesting? So we brought in a representative of the committee to, uh, to protect journalists. She was able to go and talk about the number of journalists that have been assaulted and killed around the world, in the U.S. and in New Mexico, where the most dangerous places were in the world for it to be a journalist. Um, we brought in a publisher from Mexico who shut down his newspaper after his investigative reporter was shot and killed in front of her children. Um, and so that's where the starting point was, is is it or was there or is there a siege mentality and isn't this and we kind of built the class up and you know to the point where we developed a siege idea how are the students in terms of their receptiveness to this idea um we didn't have a large class it was a you know it was a really nice small class and that's kind of nice you had i think we had 20 students in the class and those 20 students were so engaged. It was just, you know, you know, every Wednesday night we'd sit there and, you know, and we'd have these long-ranging conversations about with the people that were there and the people that were that I was able to connect with them uh, throughout the country, uh, you know, via Skype and what have you. And we were able to have this, you know, run the running conversation about what it meant to be a journalist in the, the in the, today's world. Is it something that you feel like has been a slow sort of unraveling kind of worldwide, this idea? Or, or does it say something about how the world feels about truth or about power? What, what, what are the major themes that, come, that you've been able to sort of uh, get, kind of 
putting all this together and thinking about? I think uh, it started uh, during the 2016 presidential election, and um, it started up in Iowa when we had a class up there covering the presidential election, and we started seeing at that point all the candidates, not just a few, but all of the candidates making these extreme nonsensical claims. And, you know, truth went out, the, appeared to be going out the, the window. Uh, that's where people started counting the number of times that Trump made things mm-hmm. up. Yeah, the idea of whether this was something connected to a shoot the messenger kind of approach or whether there was something, you know, the inherently distasteful about knowing what's going on in the world that, that made people turn away from it. I don't think it was at that point shoot the messenger. I think at that point was it was more we could confuse the messenger um, and we could keep the messenger so confused. Um Let's go back to the way it used to be in this country. The, um, the, 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 the way it started, the way news uh, journalism has worked in this country for dozens and dozens of years, going back you know, into the 50s and before that. The news agenda was set in the morning by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and a third paper, which might have been USA Today, might have been the Washington Post, but it was the, the agenda was set by the the Times and the Journal, and then everybody else, and that became the the agenda for the day. And everybody built their their schedules around those the the, the top stories that were being reported. What happened in 2016 with the presidential election and uh, Trump was. He took control of setting the agenda by saying at 5.30 in the morning, my tweets are what's going to set the agenda. Mm-hmm. And that changed the conversation, you know, permanently, frankly. Uh, it makes journalism very reactive. Yes. Rather, but not reactive to events, reactive to how they're being shoved, basically. If you go back in t- uh, we had... Um, a group of journalists come through, I want to go and say, six years ago, uh, from South America, South and Central America. It was the Murrow Fellows. And there was two or three journalists that were from, um, I want to go and say Venezuela, but maybe not Venezuela. It might have been a different country down there. I think, but it, I, for some odd reason, it's sticking in my head that it was Venezuela. And the then president of that country was no longer dealing with the media. He was going around the media uh, and using Twitter or whatever social media platform he had at that time. Do you remember Twitter uh, came on what year? 2007, somewhere around there. Something like that. So, So this would have been 2012, 2011. So he was using Twitter to bypass the media. And we were, and they were asking us, how do we deal with this? And we were sitting there thinking that our little ivory tower is saying, well, gee, we don't have anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, tick, we, tick, tick. <laughs> <laughs> and all of us, and we're sitting, and we're thinking, and I'm thinking, now I think back to, and I go and say, 
oh my God, you know, if we would have you know gotten down there and helped them go and deal with this at that time, maybe today we'd understand how to go and deal with it today. So what would what would you? I'm kind of curious, given the background and the trajectory we've been on, um, and I don't know how to. There's a couple ways of asking this question, but like when you kind of project what's going to be happening in journalism in the future, do you have like a an an idea you th- think or a picture that you think will allow it to you know kind of regain its footing and not be so much reaction to tweet storms and things like that? I think I, I think yeah. Uh, what's happening in journalism? is is you're, uh, you're having a fragmentation of the audience because the audience is finding their news in so many places and there's so many new publications uh, and outlets that are opening every day um, so that these new outlets, the New York Times no longer sets the agenda. Each one is now going to be determining their own agenda. And so what you're going to find is that you know the agenda that's being set is going to be it's going to be more people are going to find the, the audience is going to find the outlet that is more reflective of who they are uh, rather than reflective of you know the 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 political person that they are so that it becomes a the 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 smaller more unique uh, newer, uh, many online uh, outlets are going to be the ones that are controlling the agenda and controlling the conversation and 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 steering the conversation. Mm-hmm. So, and you're 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 thinking that this will continue to be basically a, a collection of private entities because you know the whole thing that's come up in the recent past about Alex Jones, Facebook, you know, Twitter access to these tools has become kind of an interesting issue of you know who actually gets to play and what are the what are the responsibilities and regulatory mechanisms that affect you know some of these digital organizations as well. It used to be that the printing press and the television studio was a barrier uh, to anyone that wanted to go and enter the media market. There is no barrier now. Anyone can go and enter the media market. They can have a, put a microphone in somebody, put a set up an internet feed, and they can be on air tomorrow. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with that? There is nothing. There is nothing wrong with that. And that's the point is that people now have control to go and do what they and create the, the news. But the problem is what is a journalist? You know, what defines what a journalist is? Is a blogger a journalist? And I would argue that a blogger is not a journalist because they're not trained to be a journalist. And there are certain things that you have to go and do to be trained as a journalist. And that makes a difference. And do you think that well, most it, people... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, but, but it goes deeper than that, too, because there's now arguments that journalists aren't journalists, because well, that, you can make that... Ar- or people are making that argument, and that's where it gets even trickier. Yeah, I, you know, there is that. You know, it's more than an argument. It's that, you know, that journalists are t- staking out ide- uh, positions and what have you, and they're not... You know, you know, being so-called, uh, uh, you know, 
unbiased. Yeah. There is no unbiased journalist in the yeah. world. Everyone has some bias from the day that they were born. Yeah. And and I'm saying this, I'm not saying that that's rightly happening. I'm, I'm just saying it's it's also easy to look at you and say, "Well, sure. you're not you're not a journalist and this isn't real." And right. and, and it's it it further complicates the issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that part of the professionalization you're talking about is learning how to how to to reduce that as a factor in what you're reporting mm-hmm. because your responsibility becomes to the audience to a larger degree. And that's where I think, I mean, I think it's interesting that that when you were describing people's reactions to it, that it was a, a them thing, right? When we think about community journalism, for example, that's an us thing, yes. right? And which Very is a so. completely different model. And, you know, one I think probably has had more roots in things like radio broadcasting than necessarily what we're seeing with the, with the online media at this point. I think, yeah, I think the radio, radio especially, small town radio, uh, is much more us than they or them. Uh, you know, I think small town newspapers has a tendency still to be a little bit of they, uh, and when it should be us. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, the agenda. You know, the we're we're into this. You know, what's going to happen to newspapers and television stations in the future as we go forward? Uh, um, you know, post, well, you know, this four years with uh, the current uh, administration or eight years if this administration is reelected. What, what, what's going to change as a result of that? Uh, one thing that's going to definitely change is that uh, we're going to have a much more, a much heavier, heavier use of social media than we've ever had before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they're not going to look at this thing with, uh, uh, the president right now is an anomaly, and it's just going to be all that he's just, it's just Donald Trump that's doing this. It's going to be, everybody's going to learn how to do this, mm-hmm. because this is how, yeah, they're going to weaponize uh, social media. It kind of, and it kind of reinforces a very moment-to-moment existence, because, I mean, one of the things you were describing before is that the, the kind of older... I mean, it was a news cycle that was initiated by East Coast newspapers, but then there was a cycle to it, not a constant barrage. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, all you do is you turn on Twitter and you find yourself in the land of instant reactions, right? People instantly reacting to things in these very short bursts over and over and over again. And it's very gratifying from like a short attention span perspective. I don't know why dopamine gets released when you like go through a Twitter feed, but it feels good to like consume the world that way. Yeah. There's just like no thinking or reflection. Out, you know, and it also, that. but for me, it also feels good if I get home from work one day. I'm like, huh, I didn't look at anything once. That feels kind of nice, you know. Like, like, like I, I didn't even think about what could be happening out there, you know. The, the, uh, the opposite has has started to to release dopamine uh. for me as well. <laughs> I get up in the morning. I don't even want to turn on the television or turn on or, or even turn on NPR right. because I just can't. You get that nervous it. feeling I, of, of. I want to go and have that little bit of solitude where yeah. I can look at the papers and absorb what they're saying. I don't read, quote, read the papers like I used to because they're reporting yesterday's news. Sure. I'm looking at the op-ed pages and the editorials and the letters to the editor. That's where my focus now is on my reading. 
And so when I start, when I leave uh, my house to come to the university, I turn on NPR, and the barrage starts on that point, and it never stops. Yeah, that was my, my, my challenge over the last couple of days with the hearings going on is how long can I listen to it before I have to switch over to the classical station because I just can't take it. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is the last three days with the hearings has just really made things, uh, you know, just way over the top difficult to contend with because to sit there and, you know, is it driving anywhere or going anywhere and all you're hearing is people talking about what Kavanaugh said or what he didn't say or what... Yeah, some of it. I mean, it's kind of interesting because there's always it always holds out this possibility of actually being something substantial. But there's so much performance involved in it. But there was a really interesting conversation yesterday about the difference between what was it? uh, Settled law and pres- uh, 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 Supreme Court precedent, right? Right. And that there's some, there were, there was an attempt to try to nail down, because people use those terms as if they are, there's a meaningful difference between those. And it was just, it's sort of like the worst form in the world for that kind of specificity, because people don't like, I mean, the whole desire is to not be nailed down uh, about things in that situation. So it's kind of, it's kind of funny, and, and, and I, I certainly has made, has increased my cynicism a little bit, because even though this is designed to engage with the public more it actually kind of has the opposite effect because i think most people really understand that it's a performance that that there really isn't something you know unless something is a substantial gaffe that you know it's 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 a a performance by the media yeah as well oh yeah absolutely so so that yeah on wednesday morning uh a half hour before the hearings began the talking heads on cnn fox and msnbc were all screaming at each other and I turned it off. Uh, it's like, I don't need that noise. Uh, before the hearing begin, even begin, uh, they're screaming at each other. And it's just like, let's get to the hearings. Let's hear what they have to say. And even at the hearings, they were screaming at each other. It was all performance art. Yeah. That was an interesting thing. Uh, Can I move on to one last issue, which has to do with, uh, I I was kind of picturing uh, both of you in the room with me now. Uh, In in fact, you've got a swoosh on your uh, jacket there, Adam. I do. You do. So you you, uh, seriously haven't, like, thrown all of your swoosh-related apparel into the backyard barbecue. No. 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 Uh, so um, this is all about Colin Kaepernick becoming uh, the face for Nike, um, and the ad that was it. Is it? To, I think it, it, it's premiered within the next day it, or two. It premiered, yeah. it premiered last night. Yeah. yeah, on the whatever football game it was. Yeah. Right. And yeah, the ad's a, out. Yeah, there was a great transcription of a woman's 911 call where she said, I need somebody to come over here because my husband has stabbed himself. What happened? Oh, he was cutting the Nike off his shorts while he was wearing them. And then he screamed something at her and she goes, he wants me to tell you it's about Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was really great. And what did you think about that, John? What do you think about their decision to, to, to work with him as the face? I, uh, you know, you... <clears throat> They obviously don't think that uh, uh, the people that are opposed to Colin Kaepernick are going to be the, are the majority of the audience that they want to go and talk to or that they want to go and sell their gear to. Uh, that They think that there's a much larger audience that don't care, A, or B, support what Kaepernick is doing. Um, so um, this idea that, you know, that... that 
you have an, a, a very small group of very vocal people that can go and tell a company what it's going to do or not do. It's going to be interesting to go and see this play out over the next week uh, as to whether or not they can go and force Nike to back down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Nike is apparently betting on that their most of their prime audience is not going to disengage. I think we, we go back. Um, you know, there have been social protests like this against companies in the past, and the com- and almost invariably the companies have ended up backing down, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. So it'll well, and, and it will be. I don't know. I but so the, the same comment that you brought up about how the New York Times op-ed piece sort of overshadowed what was happening. Nike had an also incredible ad come out the week before that was about Serena Williams and growing up and and her relationship with her dad and working hard over time and it was just absolutely beautiful and it's really unfortunate to see that that story get so over overshadowed mm-hmm. by the, by this one as well. Although she's um, used in the in the Kaepernick ad as kind of like the punctuation mark and the yeah. the setup of lists of other people who have you know set those kind of goals for themselves yeah so so the question becomes is this going to now be something that nike is going to do or are they going to have an ad a, a week like this <laughs> uh, or is this or the colin kaepernick and the serena williams are they or is that, uh, so so I, I mean with the conversation we've been having you know how do you cut through the media right how do you cut through the conversation and actually get noticed is the conversation which companies are having with their ads all the time is how do we generate a conversation around this or how do we generate a conversation around our music video or how do we you know a, con- a conversation around our late night show bit um, and what what we've what we've decided to do as a comp- a country whether you are a company or a television show um, or a newspaper as we've all pointed our targets in the same direction and we say we're going we're to stay on the same topic um, because it's the only thing people are talking about and I think that's what drive what, what ultimately will drive that um, and that's that's taking maybe a narcissistic view to it because because uh, I, I don't want I don't want to say that and it sound like I you know that I don't support what Colin Kaepernick stands for or why he decided to make his decisions at all but I, I, th- I think the the broader unfortunate side of this of whether you believe it or not is that we continue to have the same exact conversation every single day day in and day out and because but as you've mentioned john uh you know uh, one man decided to tweet that he didn't like kneeling at nfl games and then it became a national conversation it, and it wasn't before that at all mm-hmm. yeah no i think like and like you were talking about john with maduro it's also a way of getting around the audience right it's like connecting directly outside of standard media branding it, you know the audience is going to have to become much more engaged in the news. Um, they're going to have to become better educated about the media that they're consuming, um, and they're going to have to go in, the, you know, to become partners uh, in the conversation. They can't just be passive anymore if they're going to go and um, if the republic is going to continue the way, and I don't want to go and say the republic is coming to an end. I'm not saying that. Well, that's what we're saying. Yeah, that's what, <laughs> that's what we're that's, yeah, the premise of the show is that we've actually survived another week. Yeah. Well, you know, before... it is, it's, it's, the republic is not coming to an end. But you know, if if we're going to go and continue to go and you know expand and become a, you know this country that. Uh, that and in the world that we believe in, you know, we're going to have to think more broadly about all these subjects and become better educated. And 
about the the content that we're consuming, uh, and that's going to be the issue. Yeah, yeah, and the you know you hear this argument, and so the argument that's made with the kneeling at the NFL is you know well you you need to support the flag, you need to support the veterans, you need to realize who's who's serving us and why you're being served. And my my argument against that is well the veterans also. You need to you need to support them by not allowing them to be the reason for the discussion itself because because they're not asking for that either like they don't want to be at the center of this um, there's there's no need for us to have a a large conversation about um, you know the uh, the military as it relates to clothes well and you know the other part of that is that as members of the public we pay for the military. The military pays the NFL an enormous amount of money to be involved in the spectacles that are involved with flyovers and all that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I guess from the most cynical point of view is, man, it keeps the NFL in the headlines, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So and and deflects from issues like concussions and uh, their tax-free status and some of the other little details about the NFL that make it kind of interesting. The the thing that people watch after they're done with the Sunday morning talk shows, right, John? They flip over that to the the big game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so we're, we're root for the home team, right? Right. No, I actually we're not supposed. This is I. Somebody was telling me that uh, Malcolm Gladwell says that you should just never root for the underdog. You should always root for the favored person. I think he also says don't punt. Yes. I think he's got a, he's got a, he's got a lot of interesting football strategies. He's, that... he's taking a lot of abuse. Have you noticed this? People are going after Malcolm Gladwell. Wow, it's they, really interesting. They've been doing that since he got popular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Well, that, that does it for this episode. John, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciated having you. you on the show. Until next week. If the world's still there. We'll see you then. 